Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, October the 2nd, and we're talking healthcare. I'm Shannon Jones, your host, and I am joined by healthcare guru Todd Campbell. Todd, how's it going? I'm doing well, Shan, as always. Happy to be here and talk all things healthcare. Oh, yes. One of my favorite treats of the week. And today is no exception because we're going to be diving into Amazon's latest step into healthcare and what that could mean for full favorites like Teladoc. And we're also going to be diving into one of the biggest cancer conferences that just happened in Europe, giving you some updates there. But, Todd, let's kick things off with Amazon. Um, for those out that don't know, that's ticker symbol AMZN, but Amazon has been really been making a series of moves into the healthcare space. They just announced something called Amazon Care, a new way of delivering healthcare to its employees. Todd, what exactly is happening here? What's interesting is everybody's so fascinated by Amazon because they have this tendency to approach something as an internal project and then boom, it becomes a business model and, and a source of revenue. And with so much money at stake in healthcare, the thinking has been that Amazon uh, has larger designs than just simply having better health, offering better healthcare to its own employees. So what we saw in 2018 was Amazon teaming up with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan to create Haven, uh, a, a, I guess we'd call basically just a, a research-driven company that's going to try and find better ways to deliver healthcare to their employees. And then more recently now, this week, Amazon rolling out something that they're calling Amazon Care. It's going to begin for employees only in the Seattle area, but it's widely expected that if it works well, that they'll roll that out to other um, centers of, of the other geographic areas of the country where they happen to employ a lot of people. And what Amazon Care is going to do for those employees, it's going to provide them with telemedicine, so virtual health visits with a doctor. It's going to have the uh, provide employees with an opportunity for an at-home visit if, say, for example, a test needs to get done and they need to collect a, a sample, like a blood sample. Uh, they're going to be delivering prescriptions straight to the home. And they're going to incorporate a chat feature that allows you just, if you have a quick question, to be able to chat quickly with, say, a nurse or a nurse practitioner. And I think that one of the things that's really fascinating about this is it kind of shows just how focused big companies are in trying to figure out how to rein in this Goliath, this you know unstoppable force that is healthcare spending. Yes, and it's really no wonder that Amazon is really taking the approach of just this employer-based model to try to drive down costs. There was a recent survey from Kaiser Foundation where about half of the U.S. right now is receiving some sort of employer-sponsored um, health insurance. And in 2019, annual family premiums for employer health insurance rose 5% to an average of $20,576. If we break that down a little bit further, workers are actually paying roughly about $6,000 toward that premium cost, but that means employers are having to foot the bill for about 75%. With half of the population getting their insurance, it makes complete sense to me that as Amazon tries to tackle basically the war on healthcare spending, it makes sense to me to do it, of course, in-house, as they always have done with many of their initiatives, and really focus on that employer-based model. Um, I've mentioned the uh, Haven Healthcare that they're doing. 
would not surprise me at all to see this rolled up into that initiative. They've been pretty mum about what's happening with uh, Berkshire, J.P. Morgan, and Amazon with this initiative, but I could easily see that. You also can't forget they did that acquisition with PillPack Pharmacy, the online pharmacy, uh, back in June. And they just announced that they are actually rolling out um, earbuds. They're getting into the earbud business um, with a project that will basically allow you to put an earbud in your ear and it becomes almost like a fitness tracker. Um, this is a really interesting move, especially with the likes of Livongo Health that recently made its debut onto the market, digital health monitoring. Um, Livongo was actually the first company to have a, an Alexa-enabled skill um, built in for controlling diabetes. So you see Amazon really kind of taking these series of steps to try to tackle not just healthcare spending, but also drive actual patient outcomes over the long term as well. Yeah, you, you hit on the uh, important number, and I'm going to drive that home for investors, listeners. So private health insurance spending, $1.2 trillion plus annually. $1.2 trillion. And what's really interesting, and I've talked about this a lot in the past, we focus a lot of attention on trying to curb spending on drug prices and, and drug costs, right? The reality is that we spend way more money on physician and clinical services. I mean, we spend as a healthcare system $3.5 trillion a year, and 20% of that is on physician and clinical services. So if you really want to move the needle on cost, you've got to figure out a way not to just, you know, we keep doing these demand oriented kind of solutions where we're going to increase access to care. That doesn't help on price. We really need to start focusing on innovative new ways to increase supply, make supply. Uh, more efficient. And one of the greatest, best ways, in my view, to do that is to make the best use of the time that you have available now. So, I mean, if you have doctor available today, take a look at how much of that doctor's time is being spent on things like, you know, patient cancellations or admin duties and say, you know what, we're going to remove all of that and we're just going to allow you to meet with patients on demand as they need it. And, you know, we've seen this in the industry. You know, we mentioned Teladoc at the top of the show. I mean, they, the average, I think, meeting on a virtual health visit is only like 15, 20 minutes, something like that. So you can pack these right in and you never have to worry about someone no-showing. And then, of course, from the from the employee side or, or just from the patient side, I mean, what a convenience factor. You know, you've got the flu. You don't have to drag yourself out of bed. You can just, you know, go onto your app, click a button, and you know, find out if you need a prescription. Yeah, great, great point, Todd. Um, and going back to Teladoc, I think the question right now in a lot of investors' mind, and certainly here at the Full, uh, where we follow Teladoc quite a bit, um, and that's ticker symbol TDOC for those that aren't aware. Um, Teladoc is far and away the leader in the telemedicine space. Um, it's hard for even some of the competitors out there to even try to match what they're doing. They've got a an expert panel of doctors. They employ around 50,000 medical experts across 450 different specialties, have a little over 26 million paying members, and that's still less than 10% of the U.S. opportunity ahead of them. Todd, I mean, if the question is, what does this mean for Teladoc? One of the first things I think of is, why isn't Amazon buying or partnering with Teladoc when they have such an expansive reach? Well, they have so much technology already at their disposal. And if you're only, if you're not convinced yet that you want to go this direction, it's better probably just to, to do something small 
uh, internally. And then when you decide that you really want to roll this out or do something more broad, then go out maybe and do an acquisition. I think that we saw today, I, I think Teladoc is down 10% as of the time uh, of recording, 10% in one day, which is, and you know, that follows obviously getting hit on the news of Amazon coming out. I think that's a complete re- overreaction. Um, listen, Teladoc did 2.8 million visits uh, last year. They'll probably do like 4 million visits this year. Shannon, how many primary care visits would you guess uh, happen in the US every year? Oh, gosh. Just throw, yeah, throw a number out. Um, I'm going to th- say 5 million. Okay, primary care visits in the U.S., 500 million, half a billion (laughs) visits. So, (laughs) you know, to to be concerned that that, that there isn't a lot of growth opportunity ahead of Teladoc with Amazon sort of dipping its toe in is, is, I think, that's kind of uh, lowercase foolish. And there might be a a buy opportunity presenting itself here. It's something definitely, obviously, we're going to want to watch. But I think that this market is, 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 so big <laughs> that you're not just going to have one player. Exactly. And I mean, telehealth is the way of the future. Um, it's not just teledoc. I mean, you're seeing even other medical specialties jump on the telehealth back bandwagon with teledentistry now. Um, so that is the way of the world. And if I'm an investor, I want to invest where I think the world is going and the future that I want to see. Teladoc is one of those companies. All right. So, in other news, we do have some big updates on companies that recently presented at one of Europe's most closely watched medical conferences. That's none other than the European Society of Medical Oncology, or ESMO, as we like to call it. Uh, the first update actually came from biotech behemoth Amgen, and that's ticker symbol AMGN. Um, this is a company that made headlines for one of its drugs and turned a, turned a lot of heads earlier this year, I believe in June, then again in September, for impressive results related to its drug AMG510, specifically in lung cancer. But for this conference, Amgen released data for AMG510 in colorectal cancer. Todd, what did we see in this indication? All right, so this is whole part of this whole idea of getting to precision medicine, where we're actually being able to to drill right down and be able to find these targets that we wouldn't have been able to find before and, and actually be able to really move the needle, not based on where the cancer originated, but but basically based on the, the makeup of, of uh, or the cause behind causes behind it. And in this case, we're targeting something called CRAS, K-R-A-S, and we're specifically targeting CRAS G12C. Uh, and that's found in about 13% of non-smell lung cancers, about 3 to 5% of colorectal cancers. And we're talking about a patient population that Amgen estimates is about 30,000 people diagnosed every year. They've known about this as a target for a long time, but up until very recently, they've considered it to be undruggable. They just haven't, couldn't figure out a way to be able to, to you know, exploit it. And as a result, you know, a lot of people were thinking, hey, this, this could be a really exciting um, opportunity uh, for Amgen and for one of its competitors, I'm sure we'll talk about the competitor in a second. Um, and sure, but but you know all of the hype, I guess that you'd see from the earlier in the year, kind of fizzled out a little bit on this latest update at ESMO, ESMO because you know in the colorectal cancer group, the results really were nothing overly spectacular. You look at the 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 cohort that was available, so there was only 12 patients, so it's a very small. Um, number of people, we have to keep that in mind, but only one patient uh, experienced a partial, and that was a partial response, experienced a partial response. So that's an 8% uh, response rate. Now, they, they did argue that 10 of 
the patients had stable disease, and that's a disease control rate of 92%, but we're talking a very, very short window of time to be evaluating that. So I think a lot of people came out of the ESMO update for Amgen and said, oh, maybe this isn't as exciting as, as we once thought it to be. Yeah, so true. And really, you mentioned with this particular target, the CRAS target, um, as being undruggable. We've known about this target for over 30 years now. And just trying to figure out a way to crack the code has been tough. And it comes down to a lack of binding pockets on the surface of the protein itself. So Amgen was hoping um, with this drug in colorectal cancel that they could really crack the drug in this particular indication. But I think what we're seeing um, time and time again is colorectal cancel cancer is an indication that is not really a monotherapy indication. You're really probably going to have to go at it with some sort of combination strategy. Um, And I think what's really driving this is that colorectal cancer is so different. There are probably several mutations that are happening to actually drive this cancer growth. We don't necessarily know what those are, but it just becomes a much harder target to go after. Um, But there is another company that is going after this opportunity, and it's a company called Marathi Therapeutics, that's MRTX. They've got their drug, MRT849, um, that they're studying in this indication. We could actually get data from them um, later in the month, October. There is a cancer meeting happening at the end of October that we'll be closely watching just to see where they are going in this particular space, too. Right. And it's very important for investors now to shift their focus to thinking about that, because I mean, what we saw earlier in the year is when Amgen rep- reported data that was viewed more um, positively, Marathi's share price took off. And then we saw some data that was eh, a little bit meh, and Marathi's shares took off again because people were thinking, well, maybe Marathi has, uh, has basically a better drug in development. Maybe they could deliver better results. Again, no data yet to be able to parse out of Marathi on their drug. Now, this time around, um, Marathi did fall. Um, so it's going to be very important. This is a company, Marathi, doesn't, doesn't have any drugs on the market right now. It's a $3 billion, roughly, market cap. Um, so all eyes now for investors should shift to Marathi and see what their data looks like at the end of the month. Exactly. Assuming they report it. And still for Amgen, I mean, still a big lung cancer opportunity. So we are by no means writing off this drug. Um, I think we're just getting closer now um, in the science. We're starting to see where that personalized medicine approach really does work and where it doesn't. And I think that's even more as helpful as seeing the efficacy data. So uh, let's talk about another update, and that is none other than Seattle Genetics. That is ticker symbol S-G-E-N, along with its partner, Estellas, also reported data here at ESMO. They've been studying a drug called Infortumab Vetodin. (laughs) Why couldn't they just make it one word, Todd? Why did they have to have two (laughs) difficult words for the name of this drug? But anyway, they are studying it in combination with Merck's Amino Oncology Wonder Drug Keytruda in a certain type of bladder cancer. What did we see there, Todd? All right, so let's just call it EV for short. I like it. <laughs> so EV. So this is a really interesting uh, medicine. Okay, so it's an antibody, antibody drug conjugate. So basically what you're doing is you're taking something that can go out and attach itself to a molecule, and then you're taking that um, and attaching a or combining it with something that can then cause the cancer cell to die. So this is a very, very intriguing approach. And the whole mechanism of action has been kind of proven out because Cialgenics already has one of their drugs on the market in a different indication. And what we saw at ESMO was Seattle Genetics and its partner, Astellas, they're partnered on this drug 50-50. So they take 
you know, each of them shares 50% of the cost to produce it. And if it gets approved and hits the market, they'll share 50% of the profits. Okay. So what they reported was that if you use this particular medicine, EV, um, you can actually have really, really strong response rates in first line cancer. And that's, that's, that's really, really impressive. First line bladder cancer. Um, the confirmed objective response rate was 71%. And the complete response rate was 13%. And yeah, there were some, you know, obviously, there were some adverse events and such, but it, they looked pretty manageable. Now, that's really encouraging, because they already have filed for approval and received priority review status for the FDA for this medicine, EV, uh, in later line use. So heavily pre-treated patients who are out of other treatment options. And a decision on that is expected in March 2020. So this data that just came out of ESMO, in my view, not only increases the, p- the possibility or the likelihood of the FDA giving this a green light in the later lines, but eventually getting this so that it, you know, you get the label expansion into the earlier lines, which of course allows for uh, more patients to be treated and theoretically more revenue and, and increased profitability. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned the safety issues. I think it was 51% had at least a serious side effect, grade three. There was one patient that did die, unfortunately. This was a patient that had multiple diseases and died due to multiple organ dysfunction. But ultimately, Todd, these results here um, well beat chemotherapy alone. That has about a 41% objective response rate. So the data coming out of ESMO for this company, just like you said, it's extremely encouraging, extremely impressive. Doesn't mean there's not competition out there, though, because there is a smaller company, Immunomedics, ticker symbol IMMU. Um, They've got a therapy out there, similar target, saw 29% of its patients respond. Um, Of course, their shares took a tumble off of this news coming out of Seattle Genetics. But I think all in all, Seattle Genetics, um, looking at this data, definitely gets a check mark from me. Granted, there are some safety concerns, but all in all, pretty impressive. Yeah, and I think just to kind of like put some numbers out there for listeners to kind of keep in mind. So 12,000 people in the U.S. roughly pass away because of late stage bladder cancer. So that would be, you know, theoretically the target market initially if it is approved next March, those 12,000 patients with limited treatment options. And then overall, about 82,000 Americans are diagnosed with bladder cancer in the U.S. every year. Um, So theoretically, you know, five, six times more if they get the eventually get the approval for earlier line therapy. Yeah. So a lot to watch here. Um, I believe they've got a March 2020 PADUFA date. That's when we could see approval here. Um, we'll still need to see durability just of these responses over time, but all in all, uh, positive check marks. And as for us, that'll do it for this week's industry-focused healthcare show. Uh, if you're looking for more stock ideas and recommendations, be sure to check out our stock advisor service. This is our flagship service here at the Motley Fool. You'll get stock recommendations from David and Tom Gardner every single month. In addition, you'll get Best Buys Now and a whole lot more. Just go to if.fool.com. Again, that's if.fool.com. We've got a special 50% discount for all of our industry-focused healthcare listeners out there. Again, that's if.fool.com. 
And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is being mixed by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Mm-hmm.